Sabbath School, Lesson 5, January 25 to 31, From Pride to Humility. I want to start by reading part of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 goes like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So in the psalm here, we have an image of a tree. And the tree is the central image in this week's study. But whereas in the psalm, Psalm 1, uh, the tree is a righteous person, symbolic of a good person who delights in the law of the Lord, we also find that the tree in this week's story is a person, but it's portraying the person in a negative light. I remember when I was uh, a child, my parents were very suspicious of uh, people who craved power and craved positions of authority. And they would always say this very common phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And it seems to happen time and time again. Uh, no matter how good people's intentions are, uh, no matter how noble they think they are, no matter how righteous they are, no matter how immune they seem to be from the corruption of, of others, it seems that when people come into power, pride takes over. And this even happened with Lucifer. How did God create a being that is susceptible to pride? So I think in this lesson, Nebuchadnezzar shines a spotlight on the sin of pride, and helps us to understand better how pride infected Lucifer. But I want to start with this question. Why is God against pride? What's so bad about pride? Is pride ever justified? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar have a right to be proud? After all, after all he was the ruler of the greatest empire in the world at that time. And it was an amazing empire. Why shouldn't he be proud? What's wrong with being proud? Well, that is the theme that's explored in this lesson. So let's have a look at uh, the first few verses of Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. So this is written personally by Nebuchadnezzar. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Why is God interested in this pagan ruler? I think too often the uh, the Jewish people got it wrong when they um, when they isolated themselves, when they considered that they were special, when they were considered that um, they were superior to the people around them. They were chosen, but God didn't choose them for anything good about them. Um, in fact, it says. Clearly that he didn't choose them because of their righteousness. He chose them because of his mercy. God loves all people and we must never forget this. God loves people from every nation. He loves people from every status. He loves the poor as much as the rich. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God just loves poor people. But here we have God reaching out to the most powerful man in the world at that time. Does God want to reach out to the rulers in the world today? A lot of people probably don't think he does. But if history tells us anything, it tells us that God does want to reach out to the rulers of this world. In spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their tendency to pride, God wants to touch their hearts just as much as he wants to connect with you or me. In verse 3, it says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. You know, the Israelites were never supposed to travel to Babylon. plan was that God would plant them in the promised land. They would be obedient to him. They would follow him, and they would prosper there and stay there. So being sent to Babylon was not part of the original plan. 
And yet God still is able to work good out of that situation. It just reminds me that God is the master of creating good from bad. Even though it's not in God's original plan, God's plan for the people of Israel was to be in a right relationship with them, that they be a light for him, that they be obedient to him, that they prosper in the promised land. But as they rebelled against him, he lived up to his side of the covenant and he said, I will abandon you and I will allow you to be exiled, taken to a foreign land where you'll be, um, where you will lose all your autonomy, where you'll be subject to um, another kingdom. Even in that situation, God is able to to bring about good. Reminds me of the life of Joseph. That was a bad thing that happened to Joseph. And yet even Joseph declares, God did this for good. God is the master of bringing good out of bad situations. So maybe you're in a bad situation in your life now. Don't despair because God can bring about, bring about something good from that situation. Continuing on in verse 4, I Nebuchadnezzar was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. And then he had this dream of a tree. Now, he made the same mistake as he did before, and that's calling in these charlatans, these wise men who claim to be able to interpret dreams, and of course they can't. And so it says, finally, he gets Daniel. Now, an interesting thing here in verse 8, um, let's uh, have a think about it. Verse 8 says, but at last Daniel came before me, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. What does that mean? Does that mean that Nebuchadnezzar still acknowledges his own gods? Is he a polytheist still? Not too sure. Maybe he's just contrasting his God with the God of Daniel, uh, because this letter that he's writing, this declaration that he's written, is all about exalting Daniel's God. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream, and first he says, look, the um, usual guys couldn't interpret it for me, so you were successful last time, let's see if you can do it again. And he describes the dream of the tree. Now, I'm just going to pause on the story there and take you to Matthew 3, verse 10. It's surprising how often uh, the symbol and the image of a tree is found in the scriptures. You know, right from Genesis, we have trees playing an important role tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. And then in Revelation, we have the tree of life again. And when John is preaching, um, some of the religious leaders came to him and were engaged in conversation with him. He was pretty annoyed with them. And so in verse Matthew 3, verse 10, he says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a very provocative statement. He is accusing the religious leaders of not producing good fruit. They knew that um, the tree had been used in the scriptures as a symbol of Israel. And now John is saying God is ready to chop Israel down because you're not producing the fruit that he desires. Now they thought they were because they were adhering religiously, fanatically even, to the laws. Well, so they thought. And they'd even made up extra laws to try to try to make sure they are right with God, but um, their hearts were far from Him. So going back to um, to Daniel, we'll go to um, we'll go to our lesson study, and we'll go to Monday. Monday's lesson. Sorry, sorry, not Monday. Sunday is not this Babylon the Great. Okay, so 
uh, King Nebuchadnezzar explains the dream to Daniel. And unfortunately for Daniel, Daniel knows what the dream is all about. And he's upset because I would say by this stage, he's close friends with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he doesn't want anything bad to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells him that. He says, you know, I wish this would happen to somebody else, to your enemies, but not to you. I don't, don't want this to happen to you. I don't want you to have to be humbled like this, to lose your kingdom and all those things which are described in the dream. So we go to Monday and in Daniel 4, 27, Daniel 4, 27, Daniel gives the king some advice. He says, therefore, a king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. We started by asking, why is God against pride? What's his problem? Why can't we be proud? I think Daniel puts his finger right on the pulse here. He says that Nebuchadnezzar's problem, he didn't say your problem is pride. He said your problem is your sins and your lack of mercy to the poor. When people become proud, they tend to focus on themselves at the expense of others. And history has clearly demonstrated that dictators who build statues for themselves, build great palaces for themselves, and have all the luxuries that the world can offer, do so at the expense of the common person. They exploit others so that they can live in luxury. They feel entitled because they have such a high opinion of themselves. And they believe that it is their right to exploit the labor of other people for their gain and for their benefit. Now can you see why God doesn't like pride? Pride causes us to treat other people poorly whilst we treat ourselves best of all. The other obvious reason why God is so against pride is that we actually have no reason to be proud. The Bible clearly tells us that we are dust. We are so fragile. You know, it's, it's uh, amazing when you think of how vulnerable our lives are in... Um, you know, World War One and World War Two, millions of men were killed. And the most common way that they were killed was a piece of metal being shot at high speed, penetrating some vital organ. A piece of metal was a few millimetres long, a few millimetres wide, maybe one by one centimetre. That's all it takes to eliminate a human. That's how fragile, that's how vulnerable we are, how ridiculous it is that we can be so proud that we can think ourselves so amazing when a small piece of metal piercing an organ will um, cause us to cease to exist as compared to God. We are dust and we need to remember that we are dust, we are fragile, we are vulnerable and everything we have we owe to God. The breath that we have is because God is gracious enough to provide us with an atmosphere. The body that we have is simply because God is merciful enough to provide us with food that sustains our bodies and gives it all the nutrients we need. We have nothing without God. We are nothing without God. It's absolutely absurd to take any pride at all in what we have and who we are. It's all by the grace of God. Okay, let's continue on. So Daniel, uh, after D Daniel explains to the king, look, there, there, there's possibly a way out here. Please listen to my advice. Stop sinning. Be righteous and show mercy to the poor. So Nebuchadnezzar's primary sin was greed and exploitation of the poor. Show them some mercy. And then Daniel says, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Maybe God will show mercy. Well, unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar did not listen 
to Daniel's advice. Even though um, it was clear that God had given Daniel the interpretation of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar accepted that interpretation, he did not heed his advice. His, um, his pride was far too, a pow- far too much of a powerful force in his life. Okay, let's go to Tuesday's lesson where it says, Despite being told to repent and seek God's forgiveness, Nebuchadnezzar's unrelenting pride causes the heavenly decree to be executed. So unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, because he refused to listen to Daniel's advice, because he continued in his prideful ways and obviously in his exploitation of the poor, God kept his side of the deal. Now, what we do learn, however, is God gives warnings. God warned before he sent the flood. God gave a warning to Pharaoh. God always gives warnings before he executes judgment. And it's mind-boggling that humans don't pay attention to the warnings. Remember, God even warned his people multiple times before they were exiled to Babylon that they needed to repent and that if they didn't repent, they would be sent away to Babylon. They would be overtaken by a conquering nation. And in spite of the warnings, his people didn't listen and they had to suffer the consequences of that. So God is very merciful. He, he, he warned Nebuchadnezzar and then he even gave him a year to make some changes in his life. But because Nebuchadnezzar refused to make those changes, uh, the story tells us that he went out out into the uh, into the wild into the forests and um, he obviously in- encountered some kind of a mental illness where he thought he was an animal Nebuchadnezzar had to live in the wild for seven years why is it that God chose this as Nebuchadnezzar's punishment well if pride was the primary sin of Nebuchadnezzar then I suppose humility was the ultimate answer and is there anything more humbling than losing one's mind you know many people fear when they get old that they might lose their marbles that they might um, lose their inhibitions uh, suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's and in a sense when when that happens you know you, you lose some of your dignity so when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, lost his position, lost his status, lost his intellect, he lost his power, his authority, he lost everything that gave him pride. It was stripped away from him. So if the sin is pride, the the, the remedy or the cure is humility. And this was the most humiliating experience that God could have given to Nebuchadnezzar. However, even in this, even by provi- providing this humiliating experience, it was actually an act of mercy. Whenever, some people, sometimes we think that God wants to punish us, but if we actually look carefully at the stories of the Bible, the actions of God, which sometimes appear to be acts of anger, acts of punishment, are always redemptive in their motives and their nature. There will be a final judgment which is not redemptive. And sometimes uh, there have been instances in um, in the Old Testament stories where God's judgment is not redemptive. The, uh, the flood was not redemptive for those who perished. They'd been given their warnings. Uh, the the uh, fire and brimstone coming down on Sodom and Gomorrah was not redemptive for those people. They'd been given plenty of chances. But in this case and in many other cases, the so-called or apparent punishment of God is actually redemptive. I mean, God could have killed Nebuchadnezzar very easily, but what he, what he wanted was he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to become aware of his sin so that he could repent and enter into 
uh, a relationship and an under- relationship with God and an understanding of his sin and an understanding of where he sits in relation to God. God also shows his mercy here because this is the, um, the fourth time that Nebuchadnezzar has had a supernatural encounter with God. Now, you know, some of us might think, I gave you one chance, I gave you two chances, three chances, that's enough. You're not getting any more chances. Well, God gave Nebuchadnezzar another chance. And so this is a lesson for us, that when we get impatient with people, uh, when we think, that's it, I'm not giving them any more chances, just remember, how many chances has God given you? How many times have you made a commitment to God and turned your back? How many times have you not lived up to the uh, expectations of God? And yet, God continues to accept you. Okay, let's go on to uh, uh, the Thursday's lesson, humble and grateful. So after the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar comes to a realization that he's dust, that he's nothing, that God is uh, in control of everything, that even his kingdom has been granted to him by God. And in verse 34, he explains it. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven So this indicates that it took seven years to lift his eyes to heaven. How patient is God? How many years did he have to wait for you? How many years did he have to wait for me? For some people, he'll wait 80 years and right at the end of their life, they'll turn back to God. God is so patient. The scriptures say that he is the God of unlimited patience. If God believes there is still a chance of repentance, he will wait. What an amazing God. I bless the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. Still in verse 34. Why? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now, do you remember the um, first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was of the statue with the um, various metals representing different kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the idea that his kingdom was going to be overtaken. He wanted his kingdom to be an everlasting kingdom. So that's what motivated him to build the golden statue. Continuing in verse 34, his kingdom is from generation to generation. He didn't want to be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians and then another kingdom and another kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to go from beginning to end. Uh, This is the essence of pride, believing that, uh, craving the desire to control other people, to have power over other people, to believe that you are entitled, for some reason, even though you're made from the same flesh, that you're entitled to have authority, power, and control over other people's lives. Uh, This all comes from the sin of pride, and it's a a horrible, poisonous um, disease which causes us to treat people poorly. In verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. When he says all the inhabitants, he's including himself in that. We are nothing. We are just dust. We are only something by the grace of God. Continuing, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Here we have Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, acknowledging the angels, acknowledging the spiritual beings in heaven, saying that not only does God have authority among the inhabitants of the earth, but even in heaven he is the ruler over the, over the beings there. Continuing, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can restrain his hand. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. So once again, God is showing his graciousness by restoring everything to Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and 
honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his way is justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Do you think that Nebuchadnezzar has learned his lesson? It certainly appears that he has. He realizes now that the problem, what got him into trouble, was his pride. And that to cure him of that, God had to humble him. He had to become like an animal with everything stripped from him in order to see sense. You know, God doesn't want this for us. You hear of many people with testimonies of how they went from the gutter to the Savior. I was down in the gutter and with no one else to call on, with nowhere else to turn, I turned to God and he rescued me. Well, we love hearing those testimonies, but those testimonies are full of regret. Those lives which can be restored, which can be reconciled to God, they still have those sins and the baggage from the, uh, from the past. God doesn't want that for us. So don't think that you need a, a special testimony from the gutter to the Savior. Don't think that you have to have a massive turnaround in order to have a genuine Christian experience and a solid testimony that's worth listening to. We don't have to be like Nebuchadnezzar. Here we have a demonstration of two testimonies. We have the testimony of Daniel. Daniel, as far as we can see, never went through a period of rebellion. He stayed faithful to God. He was taken to Babylon as a youth. And right from the beginning, when we encounter Daniel, he is faithful to God. He is an upright man. He is righteous. He's doing his best to live in the right way according to the ways of God. And he loves God. And we have the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, the proud man, the sinful man, the, the man who opposes God, the pagan man, who had to be humbled by God, brought down into the gutter, and after seven years, finally turned to God and was restored and was reconciled to God and um, brought back into relationship with him. Now, Daniel has enjoyed, had enjoyed his relationship with God through that whole time, through Nebuchadnezzar's period of pride, through Nebuchadnezzar's humility. Daniel was enjoying the blessing and the, and the peace of being in relationship with God. Nebuchadnezzar was deprived of that for all those years. So once again, don't crave for the... Um, the uh, spectacular testimony. Don't desire to have a story that sounds exciting. Desire a story like Daniel's. Desire a testimony and a witness like Daniel's. I stayed faithful to God. I don't have the baggage. I don't have the regrets. And I don't have the consequences that I have to put up with now for the rest of my life. I want to finish up with um, a verse which completely contrasts the pride of Nebuchadnezzar with that of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 verses 5. Eight. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now remember, the scripture points out, we are nothing. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And here we have the God of the universe, the creator of all things. He made himself nothing. It's the exact opposite. Nebuchadnezzar was nothing who tried to make himself great, who tried to exalt himself. Christ is the greatest. And he makes himself nothing. Continuing in Philippians. By taking the very nature of a servant, not a ruler, 
Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be a ruler. Christ became a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. That boggles the mind. How and why would God, who created everything, become a man and inhabit a sinful, sick, polluted planet? Continuing, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Every dictator, in order to rise to power, you will find in their wake a river of blood. To reach the heights of power that they desire, they have conquered, they have shed the blood of innocent people. And in contrast to that, Christ, rather than shedding the blood of others, shed his own blood so that he might save others. What a wonderful saviour and what a wonderful God. Uh, this is an amazing story and um, it teaches us how important it is to remain humble. I believe we need to pray for humility. It is one of the um, fruits of the Spirit. And, um, you know, often we ask for the Holy Spirit and we say, Lord, give us love, give us peace, give us patience. But we also need to ask for humility because pride is always sitting there in the background, whispering in our ear, you're better than them. You're better than that. You deserve more. You deserve a raise. You deserve a higher position. You deserve more recognition. And we love to hear it. So let's commit to praying each day, Lord, keep me humble so that we don't fall into the trap that Nebuchadnezzar fell into. Help us to have the mindset of Jesus Christ who made himself nothing. Help us to submit to God, to recognize that he has dominion over all things. We are his servants and we had humbly submit to his will and to recognize um, who we are in relation to him and in relation to others so that we never exalt ourselves above others. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the lesson this week. Uh, continue studying the word, continue praying for humility, and God bless you.